We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to another water cooler conversation, a safe space for the free exchange of ideas brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and today we look at the rise and rise of the knowledge class and the cult of the university. A quarter of a century ago, the late Australian intellectual Pierre Rickmans delivered the Boyer Lecture, in which he declared that our universities had passed the point of no return. Their decline would be complete, he said, on the day, not now very distant, when we shall see universities of catering, car driving instruction and car making. In 1996, when he spoke those words, fewer than one in 10 adults had a university qualification. Today, 30% of men and 38% of women have bachelor degrees or higher. And for adults under 40, the numbers are even more stark. 36% for men and 50% for women. It's a similar picture in Britain, United States and Europe. And the consequences of this, according to my guest today, is the rise of a global cognitive elite, convinced that they're not just better educated, but better than their fellow citizens. David Goodhart joins me from London. David, welcome to Watercooler. Thanks, very happy to be here. As you can hear, my voice is uh, slightly croaky today, but I have done a COVID test and I am not infected. I don't think there's any known case of people catching it through Zoom call anyway, so I think we're fairly safe. David, I want to talk about your book, Head, Hands, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century, in which you consider the far-reaching consequences of the rise of the knowledge class. But but first, I, I wonder, could I just take you back to when our paths first crossed? I can't remember the year, but it must have been uh, well before we were watching everything on our mobile phones, because I was in a pub in Cornwall with a rolled up copy of Prospect magazine in my back pocket and you came over, I recall, and introduced yourself as a magazine's editor. Oh, I remember that, yeah. It was crack- Crackington Haven, I think. Yeah, I can't remember the pub, but I remember the magazine and I remember you. It was a very good magazine. And, uh, you know, I think your, your, your first real venture into the world of ideas and editing ideas. Was... Yeah, that, that's right. I'd... I've been on the Financial Times for 12 years and then I um, I think partly through the experience of covering German reunification in the um, late 80s, early 90s, um, kind of gave me, gave me big ideas about, um, about starting a magazine, doing something more exciting with my life. And um, I was quite well connected with money people at the FT and with good writers and and it always seemed to me there was a hole in the market for one of those kind of essay-based magazines that we see in America flourishing. Um, and so I, yeah, I set up Prospect in the mid-90s and it and edited it for 15 years. It's still going now. I don't have much to do with it any longer, but, uh, but it's still there. It never quite... I wanted to turn it into a kind of British Atlantic monthly and it never, we never sort of quite broke through, but it's still there. Well, it was a very, very good read, I remember, in your day. But uh, you then went on, of course, to to write a few books. The British Dream was a, an uncompromising look at the successes and failures of post-war immigration in Britain. Uh, and then, of course, you went on to uh, write a book which is 
became very well known here four years later, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, in which you introduced this uh, concept of somewheres and anywheres. I wish I'd thought of those words. I was searching for words. But could you just give, for those who haven't uh, read the book or come across that, give us a brief summary of somewheres and anywheres and, and where that's a sort of foundational concept for this current book? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to kind of understand the discontent um, that had arisen in our, you know, our apparently very successful, rich, free societies, uh, the, the kind of discontents expressed in Brexit vote here and the election of Trump in America and so on, the rise of populism in Western Europe. Um, and I was looking at uh, the... Uh, the education or the, the value divides driven by education, particularly higher education, and how we'd seen the emergence, not so much of a, of a kind of narrow elite, but of a sort of mass elite of, of highly educated people uh, who, uh, I mean, who, who had at least a, an undergraduate degree. Uh, as you were saying earlier, I mean, now 30 40% of the adult population in many developed countries and how that tended to promote a certain set of priorities and, 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 and values amongst the educated. There were somewhat at odds with the, the values and priorities of those people who, who didn't go through the higher education system. Uh, one of those priorities or one of those values you might say is mobility and I think that's a particular <clears throat> particularly true in the UK because a very very high proportion of people even people who don't go to the most elite universities still tend to go to residential universities so people become they, they leave home they leave their family they leave the town they were brought up in and they travel you know 100 miles 150 miles they go from in, I don't know London to Manchester or whatever uh, and they so it's sort of mobility is sort of built into their biography so they tend to be comfortable with it um, they tend to value I mean you know partly because of the values that universities are rightly there to promote they, they value openness and um, autonomy and they tend to be comfortable with rapid change um, and that can often mean that they kind of rather look down on people who are uncomfortable with change, um, um, the people I call the somewheres. <clears throat> I mean, the, the anywhere, um, I mean, obviously this is a, this is a, a simplification, but uh, I, I did spend quite a lot of time with my nose in attitude surveys and opinion surveys, and particularly the, the um, British social attitude surveys, which go back to the early 1980s are quite a good source for this. And there was, you know, clearly the emergence of a, uh, quite a large group, but still a minority, 25-30% of the population, um, very loosely the, the kind of anywhere section of society, <clears throat> which tend to be uh, you know, liberal-minded and, and tend to be comfortable with those, uh, with those notions of mobility, openness, autonomy, and so on. Um, and there's a much bigger group, bigger but much less influential group, the so-called somewheres, who tend to be less well-educated, tend to value security and familiarity um, and tend to have 
uh, an identity, a sense of themselves that is derived from place and group, the group they belong to, the place they come from. And that makes them much more susceptible to being dis discomforted by change. Um, there's this distinction, which I didn't invent. I think it was, it's the American sociologist Talcott Parsons who talks about human identities being on the spectrum between achieved and ascribed, you know, ascribed being those things about yourself you can't really change, you know, I'm white, male, British, and, um, and achieved being the kind of sense of yourself that uh, the educate, educated people often have, uh, that sense that almost they're their own invention, that, you know, they've done well at school, they've gone to more or less good universities, they have more or less successful professional careers, and that and that, that makes their identity more, more sort of um, portable, they can kind of go, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a more individualistic identity in a way, even if, even if you have quite left-wing views, but your, your sense of yourself is derived from your own achievements, uh, as the phrase implies. Um, and, and also I think makes people with, with achieved identities, it makes it harder to understand people who are discomforted by change, um, because their identities are much are much more um, susceptible, as I say, to being discomforted by if, if you know the place you come from changes, the group you belong to changes, um, that sort of part of you that is um, that is subject to that change in a way that if you have a more achievement based identity, you're you're sort of protected from that. So I mean, I, I saw that conflict. I mean, but both of the I, I should stress. That, that both of these worldviews are completely decent and legitimate, at least in their mainstream forms. Um, the problem, to the extent there is one, is that one of them has become far too dominant in our politics, culture, economy, society more generally. Um, I mean, this is true in Australia as well as the UK. I mean, it's mm -hmm. true in most of other countries. My book focused, most of the, the evidence was drawn from the UK, but I think general argument applies to most rich liberal democracies <clears throat> um and um yeah like i say that that conflict or rather the the, the over domination of the anywhere worldview and the feeling uh, that, that, that many people on the somewhere side of the fence felt um that they're that they were being kind of excluded there and 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 often sort of derided, and and you know and and you know Brexit, Trump, and so on was a sort of pushback, an attempt to use democracy to to kind of re rebalance. Now, I mean, this is obviously big generalizations, and there are many different kinds of anywheres, many different kinds of somewheres. There's a big in between a group too. I identified about twenty five percent of the population who kind of share the the anywhere and somewhere worldview almost equally um and it's not you know if you kind of i mean people i mean one of the reasons why the book did quite well was because i think those terms did strike a chord but and it sort of became almost a sort of parlor game you know are you a, are you in anywhere or somewhere or in between um and um it, it i mean it often doesn't work at the level of you know most individuals are sort of too sort of complex and 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 various to to sort of fit easily into the categories, but I think at a sort of broader level, it, it it did help to explain some of what had been going on.
I think it did, and it resonated here, as does your analysis of the effect of this great expansion of higher education. Let me just pray you a, a brief extract from an interview we recorded earlier this month with the former Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, in which he talked about this. Right now, our country does not need more marketing graduates. It does not need more arts and sociology graduates. Frankly, it probably doesn't need as many commerce or law graduates either. Uh, what we need, we need more sparkies, chippies. Uh, we need more mechanics. We need more welders. Uh, we need more people who can actually do things, get things done, often enough with their hands. We need people who can build things. And yet we've got so many people who can talk about things but not necessarily make things happen. There are lots and lots of people who go to university, uh, they spend three or four years of their life not getting any closer to a real career, not getting any closer to a real job, accumulating fifty or sixty or $100,000 in debt, and often enough filling, them, filling their heads with leftist uh, ideology and I just don't think this is helpful for our country or for the individuals concerned. So Tony Abbott then raised, I thought, two key points. One is that we have the wrong kind of skills. We've not got people with practical skills. We've got too many people uh, with intellectual skills. Secondly, because he raises the point that uh, it's commonly made that everybody, you know, people out of university tend to come out with, with a very similar worldview uh, and that is not always a view, or very rarely a view, that's sympathetic to the conservative side of politics. Do you think that that too is a function of the universities? And if so, is it a is it a bad thing? Yeah, no. I mean, I think uh, Tony Abbott is broadly right about all of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I make a similar argument in my book, Head Hand Heart. I think that. There is a particular issue with the disappointed aspiration also of a lot of people that now go to university. Um, what we've done in the UK, and I think to some extent in Australia too, is we've kind of massified an elite form of higher education, the forms of higher education that we associate with the kind of Oxford and Cambridges, which is... Uh, a, a kind of three, four-year full-time academic degree course, a where you, where you go, you know, when you're 18 or 19, um, invariably in this country anyway, I think probably slightly less in Australia, residential. Um, and in order to sort of justify all of the sort of academic palaver, um, the, you know, often quite vocational courses are sort of stuffed full or, I mean, sort of doing a construction management degree, you know, it was only five seconds ago uh, or a few decades ago when you, know, you became a construction manager by being a construction worker, you know, having managerial ambitions and you would probably learn construction management on site mainly. You might go and do some night classes or, or something. Now, um, I mean, not true in all cases, but, you know, there are construction management degrees where you spend three or four years kind of learning about accountancy and business studies and all sorts of other things, as well as 
that you know what happens on construction sites um and this is often um not particularly functional <laughs> well no you, you you come out presumably with a lot of knowledge of management theory and not a lot of knowledge of uh, of shovels <laughs> yeah um and um and and the pro the other problem is that in recent years and since we've been uh, since we've you know, hugely expanded higher education in the last twenty or thirty years, so that now almost half of school leavers in the UK go into higher education, you are obviously creating uh, diminishing returns in terms of the graduate income premium. It used to be very high. Obviously, when when I went to university, only. 10 or 15% of the population went to university. Um, it tended to be the, the, the kind of academically brightest people, uh, or, or often actually people from some privileged backgrounds who, you know, who had been well trained. Um, and uh, or a common combination of those two groups. And they they obviously tended to monopolize the the the, the best professional jobs. And um, you now have a situation where so many, um, so many people go to university that um, there aren't enough good, well-paid, highly respected professional jobs to go around. So, as well as all the other problems that, that Tony Abbott was talking about, the fact that we have a, 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 I think probably in both our economies, a sort of crisis of the so-called missing middle, the kind of technical, the kind of uh, the non-graduate engineer, the kind of technicians, you know, the equipment, the, the sort of lab technician type jobs that, um, you know, that we used to have things called um, HNDs and HNCs, high-end high national diplomas, um, the, the kinds of the kinds of courses that plumbers and electricians did, um, and and technicians of various kinds. The, the kinds of people that did those courses now go to university. The sort of children of the people that did HNDs and HNCs are going to college, um, and so we, you know, the result of which is we have a huge crisis of, um, you know, HGV drivers, um, you know, technical uh, non-academic and engineers of various kinds, um, various kinds of IT technicians. We, we, we've there's an absolutely huge recruitment crisis in these areas the result of which obviously is that pay is going through the roof um so which is helping to realign the uh, the this sort of unbalanced system that we've got in the meantime however i think we've created a whole generation of uh, undergraduates many of them from middling even um lower socioeconomic backgrounds who are first in their family to go to university who have been led to expect that they are, you know, they've done everything asked of them, they've worked hard and they've, uh, they've passed their exams, they've gone to college, um, but they're coming out at the end of it and finding they're not getting the high status, well-paid professional jobs that they were expecting because there simply aren't enough of them. And this is even before AI really kicks in. And AI is coming precisely for the, the sort of lower and middle level cognitive jobs um in law in accountancy in medicine and so on um and and i so, so i think as well as the sort of labor market misalignment uh, you know we're producing people with the wrong skills and i mean and we have these crises of 
the sort of technician crisis, the, the crisis in the care sector too. Um, but we're also creating a crisis of disappointed expectations because we've reached what I call peak head. Um, we're overproducing um, academically trained people and, and many of them are not, but you know, no more able um, in the general sense than, than the people who are not going to university. Um, you know, I, obviously we need highly uh, able, intellectually able people. I mean, you know, the pandemic has shown the great value of our kind of medical scientific research base, people who are able to, you know, clever people who collaborate in usually international teams to produce vaccines to combat uh, COVID and so on. I'm not at all against high intelligence. Um, you know, we'd probably need it as a species more than ever before to help us solve problems like climate change and so on. Um, but but there's a sort of misunderstanding about this, I think, that the kind of belief prop, uh, propagated, obviously, by universities who have a massive self-interest in this, that somehow the more people you send to university, the, the stronger your research base becomes, the more uh, sort of scientific breakthroughs you have, the more... Um, uh, innovation you have and there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that this is the case indeed it could well be quite the opposite that actually in the last 20 or 30 years the time when more and more people have been going to university never before have research universities have had so much resource at their disposal and yet we actually have a crisis of innovation we have a crisis of productivity we we certainly haven't seen a great economic um, success story on the back of our expanded higher education sectors. Now, you may say that's slightly unfair. We've had, you know, just looking back over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, you know, we've had a global financial crisis. We then had periods of austerity in most countries. We now have the, the pandemic. So it's perhaps slightly difficult to tell, but, uh, you know, the work of um, who's the guy in America? Is it Robert Gordon, the economist, who actually does argue that one of the reasons for the slowdown, this sort of secular slowdown in productivity has been related to the kind of creation of a sort of cognitive bureaucracy yeah that is that is a sort of dead weight on our economies i think that's right david i mean you you talk about this how particularly on the left of politics on the labor side of politics uh, there's a tendency to argue in favor of of a growth in higher education because it will make uh, us more productive it'll increase productivity well uh, we know that in britain as in australia uh, productivity growth has declined and is slowing uh, quite alarmingly. Uh, and and yet, you, as you point out, you get many more people coming out of university than there are, you know, decent jobs. So you get this phenomena um, with the creation of, you know, what I call bullshit jobs, you know, which tend to be sort of, you know, uh, in HR or compliance or various things like that. You know, none of these jobs, it's a growth of the bureaucracy, but not in a helpful way. None of these jobs increase pro productivity. In fact, they slow them, don't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think the truth is, although, as the title of my book implies, I'm in favour of shifting status and reward away from, you know, just this one, one form of human capability, the, the kind of intellectual, analytical... Uh, and sort of spreading it, uh, spreading some of that prestige and reward more to the kind of manual technical and, and caring occupations. 
Having said that, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I think that you know the people with the highest levels of kind of intellectual analytical achievement will always be sort of at the at the at the pinnacle, and and probably rightly so. You know, the kind of Einsteins and, and the people that really do make important scientific intellectual breakthroughs technical breakthroughs of various kinds but they're always going to be a tiny minority and indeed i mean the, the kind of people who produce new knowledge will always be a tiny minority and it's not i don't think there's any necessary relationship between the number of people you send to university uh, and the production of new knowledge and yeah. clearly you need a fair system so uh, and, and and people often confuse these two largely separate issues you know the, the, the issue of you know the bright kid from the poor background um th this is often held up as the reason for the over expansion of higher education you know that we're kind of providing more ladders up um to the bright kid from the poor background i don't actually think there's any evidence for that i think that there have always been ladders up indeed i think go back 50 years or 100 years our societies were, were characterized by lots of little ladders up. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, I think the way that we think about social mobility is deeply flawed in many ways. We tend to think of that long ladder from the, you know, the disadvantaged inner city background or whatever sort of sing, single parent household going up to, you know, Oxford and Cambridge or whatever your equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge is. Um, but actually social mobility is, far more importantly described as often quite small movements um you know somebody perhaps from a kind of manual working class background who um moves up sort of a couple of rungs of the ladder through acquiring a, a professional technical qualification um that, that you know spreading that through society is much more important than having small numbers of people climbing the long ladder um, but but the people at the top who tend to dominate this argument um, are either people who climb that long ladder themselves or who have been sitting at the top of the ladder because they come from privileged backgrounds. And there's a sort of narcissism about it. You know, it's all going to mm -hmm. uh, become like us. <laughs> um, and um, actually, um, you know, that, that isn't going to happen. <laughs> on, or it, it logically cannot happen on any significant scale. Um, so I think... We need to obviously we want a system that is as fair as possible that is you know people with great intellectual ability and indeed curiosity um should be able to express that from whatever background they come from by going to good you know really rigorous academic universities which of course is also something that's been sacrificed with the massification of higher education most universities are no longer um, great centers of of uh, in intellectual learning they're sort of sausage factories really um, um but we want you know, if anything smaller more rigorous uh, uh you know in intellectually superior uh, higher education system and then a much more differentiated system of you know vocational colleges of various kinds um for people for, you know requiring post post school training of various kinds because they go back 30 or 40 years the vast majority of professional people didn't go to university you know you you, you did if you were a lawyer you did your kind of articles i think they were called you know you know they were kind of like professional apprenticeships 
mm. whether you're you know, an accountant, a lawyer, or whatever. <clears throat> um, and I don't think anyone is saying that standards of law or accountancy have kind of risen dramatically as a result of people doing these courses no, no. at university rather than sort of on the job. David, there's a very important corrective in your book, a corrective in the debate, I think. Uh, you talk about uh, how the rise of this cognitive elite, uh, people, as I said at the beginning, uh, not th imagine themselves, by and large, not just to be better educated, but better people. And and they um, so as a result, you get a, a whole lot of discontent amongst people who are not in that knowledge class. And we've seen examples of that in the last 10 years or so. You know, the deplorables, Trump supporters, Brexiteers. We have the equivalent here, people who vote for One Nation. Uh, and and the, the, the narrative has been or the explanation has been are these are the people who've missed out on, on wealth. They're people that have been left behind by globalisation. It's an inequality of wealth. And yet you make the point in your book that the real issue here is not an inequality of wealth, but an inequality of esteem. That Britain, like Australia, is a fiercely or was a fiercely egalitarian country in which every person had equal worth. Uh, but now that is disappearing and people feel that they're, they're, they're ignored. Let me quote from your book. A successful, society must balance the, a successful society must balance the tension between the inequality of esteem that arises from relatively open competition for higher reward, highly rewarded jobs and the ethos of, of equality of esteem that flows from democratic citizenship. Uh, this is crucial, and it, it does seem to me when you you listen to people who are um, you know want to drain the swamp, or, or they are real. They feel that their views are disrespected, that they are disrespected as people, uh, that nobody takes them uh, as serious individuals. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been sort of liberal sneering at the less well educated and people who have you know. Well, you know, like sort of group attachments or attachments to the to the nation and the flag, and these have always been seen by the highly or many of the highly educated, particularly on the kind of liberal left liberal side of things. There's always been that sneering, and I guess it's partly just a sort of quantity thing. I mean, the more people that go to <laughs> through higher education and come out as you know with kind of left liberal values, the, the more sneering you're going to get. Um, but I do think we've ended up sort of with the worst of all worlds, haven't we? I mean, that sense, because we've focused so much on one form of success, the, the, you know, the, the academic ladder to the elite university and into the higher professional job, um, we've inevitably drawn away status and award from, from other functions and left a lot of people feeling that their contributions are not valued or not valued as much as they would have been in perhaps our, our in, in some ways less open, less democratic societies of say 50 years ago. But what what people had then often I think was a okay, they weren't they weren't ever going to get into the elite uh, or anywhere near it, but they were still making a contribution to the country's success. And and this has obviously got tied up in in deindustrialization, you know. Um, you know, if you were, you know, a working class man in South Yorkshire 
50 years ago, you know, you were sitting on top of one of the great coal fields of Western Europe. You, um, you know, you, you went to work in your local mine. Um, you, well, I mean, that, thanks to the militancy of the mining union, you probably were quite well paid. Indeed, you were actually right at the top of the kind of manual earnings league in the 60s and 70s. Um, but more than that, you, you, you know, you knew that you were powering the country. Um, and uh, and you know just with the kind of the, the nature of kind of industrial geography meant that that you had those you know, high status and in, and in some ways quite high paid manual jobs spread out all over the place all over the country um, you know so you had steel mills everywhere you had um, you know big utilities everywhere you had um, uh, you you had mines spread out over the Midlands and the North particularly. Um, and so, a com you know, alongside this kind of narrowing of prestige and reward into information handling, essentially, um, um, you've also had the kind of narrowing of um, of sort of successful areas, productive and successful areas, into the great metropolitan centres, particularly London and the southeast. Um, and that sort of exacerbated it's just, you've, had, you've had a kind of geographical and a sort of intellectual educational narrowing of um, of prestige and that sense as I say that it's much harder to feel that you're making a positive contribution to the country unless you're going through that kind of that narrow route into um, into academic success yeah and the, the, it's just been this assumption in public policy that, that higher education was just a good thing on both sides of politics. You you talk about the Blair government, but but equally well the Conservative government that followed it has been heading down this path, and and so too in in Australia. You know, but never any real thought as to in detail as to how it would benefit the country. But here's the point: people have worked this out, haven't they? You quote some research by a British think tank that asked people, has encouraging more people to go to university and fewer people gaining technical qualifications been good or bad for the country? And roughly a third, 34%, uh, said uh, it had been good. So the rest, two thirds, didn't think it had been. But here's the thing, David, we, we did our homework. We did the same question here this week, a poll of thousands of Australians conducted by Compass Polling, and the result was even more stark. Here, just 21%, barely a fifth, said the expansion of higher education uh, and the downgrading of technical qualifications have been good for Australia. So, and, and interestingly, when you look at the age numbers there, the feeling is pretty high amongst young people too. There's a little bit more support. It does decline to get older. So why is this? What, 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 how... How is this perpetuated year after year after year, this sort of expansion of higher education, when uh, quite obviously it's not fully justified in policy terms and people don't like it? Well, I think it's a, a very good example of my kind of road to somewhere thesis about the over-domination of, of a certain group, the people I call the anywheres, uh, and the assumptions of, of, of that group. Um, they have all gone through higher education. 
uh, and moved into higher professional jobs. Their children are all in the process of doing the same or have done the same. And that is how they see the world. Um, and they have to see that as a as beneficial for everybody. They place this great stress. Uh, this is why we have these fraught and often very ill-informed debates about social mobility. They see the, the you know that that long ladder up as being the sort of uh, you know, that that is the sort of gold standard of social mobility success, uh, and that sort of salves their conscience on this issue. Um, but actually, what this leads to is this one of the most ridiculous public policy contradictions um, between. So we, we sit here, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly in the UK, wringing our hands about grotesque regional inequality that we have you know, since the closure of all those industries that I was just talking about. Um, we've we have had even more concentration of you know of kind of wealth and success in London and the southeast and one or two other metropolitan centres, but mainly London and the southeast and a few university towns, the Oxford and the Cambridges, Bristol, um, and um, we we have the worst uh, regional inequality in Western Europe, I think, um, um, or comparable, I think, with Portugal, um, and yet at the same time. The, the, the political class that it worries away, rightly worries away about this, is also promoting a, 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 a parallel policy, which is that all the bright kids from whatever background should go to university, which means that all the brightest kids from working class towns, the Mansfields and the Rotherhams and the Rochdales and the Berries and the... Uh, you know, the 20 or 30% of, the, of the, the brightest kids every year are leaving those places. Uh, again, this is a particularly a UK thing because the dominance of residential universities here. They're leaving and they're, and many of them are never going back. You know, they're ending up in London. They're, they're going into, you know, into higher professional work. Um, and so we're exacerbating the problem. You know, if you lose all your brightest people, then, you know, companies are not going to want to go and invest there because they're not going to have... You know that, that range of abilities that uh, that that you know that any company needs and is going to set up a successful um, successful um, operation of some kind. Um, so yeah, and yeah, I mean, of course, one of the problems is, and, and I mean, for the last twenty or thirty years, we've also not had decent alternatives. I mean, that is one of the things. I think you you probably do slightly better on this than we do, but. Um, and everyone, of course, talks about the great German model with their wonderful dualis Ausbildung system. Um, and it's true. I mean, they, they're still about 45, 50% of school leaves in Germany go into a, in a really good, well-structured two and a half, three-year formal apprenticeship system. And they often then go on to, to, do, to, to go through higher education as well. Um, and there's no reason why, why we couldn't do something similar. I mean, we don't have the same institutions that Germany has, so we'd have to do our kind of own version of it. But we've really had very, very poor and, and uh, much less well-subsidised alternatives for those people who do not climb the academic ladder, people who don't want to or cannot because they have abilities, but they're, they're not very good at, at passing exams. They don't have that kind of ability. <clears throat> uh, you know, the options for those people in the last... Uh, couple of generations that have been dismal 
Um, we destroyed our apprenticeship system back with deindustrialization in the 60s and the 70s. And we've had a kind of confusing mess of vocational qualifications. Now, finally, actually, you know, and the, and the Boris Johnson government has uh, has contributed to this, although it goes back a bit earlier too. We now do have more of a structure. We have an apprenticeship levy. We have something called T levels, which is a vocational alternative to academic A levels. We have um, recent government initiatives in supporting. Um, subsidizing anybody who wants to train to the equivalent of A-levels in, in vocational or academic routes, um, you know, has, is entitled to state support for that. We're extending the uh, student loan scheme to people who want to do things other than for, you know, the, the standard three or four year academic course so that people can draw on those loans for vocational courses too. You want to do a six month coding course, whatever, and move into software, you can, or you will be able to get a government loan. So we, we now, you know, well, we've got sort of um, coding boot camps that are springing up all over the place. There is much more, I think partly reflecting the disappointment with, um, with the outcomes for so many graduates, or at least graduates who are not um, coming out of the very elite universities are, you know, like I said earlier, there's been a sort of collapse in the, you know, the inevitable diminishing returns, collapse in the graduate income premium for people, uh, for all those uh, not going to the most elite universities um, and, and, and the jobs not being there for them. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we, we are, you know, the, the, the ship, the ship is sort of changing direction. And I think um, things are, uh, one, of the, one of the problems here in persuade i mean uh, there have actually been more recent polls than the, the one i quoted in the book which um reinforce i mean it used to be the case almost all parents wanted their kids to go to university because that was what everybody that's what everybody told you every time you turned on the radio or tv or heard a teacher talking about it that was the single route to success i mean we've now weaned ourselves off that that ridiculous idea, I think. Um, and now more parents in the UK, according to a recent poll, would prefer their kids to, to, to do a vocational qualification and go to university. So that, that the kids themselves um, take, seem to take a slightly different view because university is you know, still that idea of kind of three years away from your, your parents, you know, you know basically kind of getting drunk and having sex. I mean, uh, you know, and, and you know, who wouldn't want to do that at the age of 19? Um, now, I, mean, I think one, one of the answers to that, and, and I think there is something to be said, I mean, uh, quite a few academics say, but actually the main benefit of higher education is not so much what you learn, because there's a huge amount of evidence suggests outside of some narrow vocational fields, but that basically everyone that goes to university forgets what they learned within about 18 months. Um, um, but you know, the, the kind of the, the old adage that sort of education is is what is left after you've forgotten everything you ever learned does I think have some some truth to it. Um, so, so, but more important, <clears throat> the, 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 you know, the notion of uh, particularly in residential universities, you know, living with, learning to cooperate with people of often very different backgrounds to you, socially, ethnically, is is quite a good thing, um, and in a, and. It's not for everybody. You know, some people are more kind of you know home 
home types and, and some people do want to kind of spread their wings and fly away um and, but i think the answer there is to kind of make this residential experience available to everybody not just the undergraduates make it available to say people doing apprenticeships you know with, with the with the internet it should be easy to um you know everybody you know to to, to allow people so long as you, you probably need your accommodation subsidized but um you know allow you know that every year say there's you know a couple hundred thousand apprentice apprentices who do their apprenticeship away from home you know perhaps indeed living in the same student halls as people doing undergraduate degrees and they could all kind of meet each other through through kind of internet networks and so on David, look, you have this wonderfully optimistic concept in there, a peak head, the idea that there'll be a correction. And look, I, I, I get that. I, I, I can understand that at the level of changing the education mix and the focus and the investment in education, more, more skills, more broad-based courses, more crossover courses between universities and skills courses. I get that bit, but I frankly cannot see uh, the cognitive class, the cognitive elite, giving up the reins of power anytime soon. In fact, in every respect, they seem to be strengthening their grip on it. Well, it is true. I mean, the number of kids going to university continues to rise, and there are these vested interests, as we've already discussed, both uh, the universities themselves, which are increasingly businesses, you know, they just have a, have a huge vested interest in, you know, more bombs on seats. And, and a political class that has been through that system um, and has, you know, and is sort of biased in favour of it. But, but I think the kind of raw economics, when, well, when I, you know, my meaning of peak head is that we've, uh, we've, we've now got to a point of overproducing cognitively trained people for jobs that are simply not there. And this is going to get worse when AI comes in. Now, we do need, you know, many highly... Uh, cognitively trained people still <coughs> excuse me but if, you know if you look at the um the top two social classes in the uk i mean i think it's the the, the professional and managerial class higher and lower um the number of adults working age adults who are in that um group in those two classes in the year 2000 was 35%. Last year it was 36 or 37%. I mean, it barely moved at all. Um, so, you know, we went through a period of rapid expansion of that sort of profession, mainly sort of cognitively trained professional managerial class. We went through a rapid, as, as no doubt you did in Australia too, went through a rapid expansion of that group, which is why we did need to expand our universities, at least, at least in, the, in the UK, we had this very, very narrow um, you know, back in the 1950s, there was still essentially Oxford and Cambridge um, and a few of the so-called red brick universities that had emerged in, in the 19th century in the, in the great industrial centres tended to specialise in, in sort of industrial chemistry and things like that. Um, you then had, the, you know, it wasn't really until the 60s, you had the Robbins Report universities and, and quite, quite a big expansion then. And, and that, I think, was entirely justified. I mean, it's, it's horses for courses. We needed more professional, cognitively trained people. Um, we were expanding education, expanding higher education itself, expanding the, the the welfare state and public services. A lot of those jobs, you know, think of all the doctors and all the professions related to medicine. Um, you know, we did need it. Um, so I'm not, you know, 
we needed it to expand it. And we then, like so many things, we overexpanded it. Um, and now the raw economics will, will pull us back. And, and, and the kids are noticing it. The kids will stop going to university because, I mean, particularly here, you, you acquire you know, 56,000 pounds worth of debt. Um, admittedly, you don't have to pay it back till you're earning reasonably well, but it's quite, you know, we have still quite generous terms and much of the debt never will be repaid. Um, but still, people are noticing that actually, you know, people they know are not going to university. They, I don't know, they're doing a, doing a coding course, they're working in a digital startup, and it seems to be quite fun, and they're earning a lot more money. And, uh, and also, you know, that the, the possibility that you could do that five, ten years or so, and then if you are actually intellectually curious and intellectually able, you might want to know what it is that kind of lies behind what you've been doing every day for the last 10 years go and do a computer science degree later on you know do, do, you know, do it down the days because it it's the, this concentration of so much post-school education investment in 18 19 year olds going to university um spread it out more over a lifetime you know i mean to, i mean i still think the higher education sector is probably too too big but actually you know if if people start going at different points in the life cycle uh, it may not have to shrink that much. It just has to kind of repurpose itself mm -hmm. and indeed rediscover some of the uh, some of the kind of idealism of, of you know, intellectual curiosity and discovery. And you know, someone in their late forties, um, you know, taking a break from work for two or three years and going off and either reading George Eliot you know, or finding out about studying Sanskrit or something that has no kind of immediate labor market value but is but is extremely stimulating thing to do well david thank you for your book head hands heart published by uh, penguin random house and thank you for really i think stimulating a, a, a well overdue discussion here we're going to be taking it up at the menzies research center covid i think has has brought together and brought to a, a point a lot of the issues problems that were facing university there's going to be a new model, I suspect you agree, after COVID. So we'll be looking at this in more, more detail. But David, it's a great book. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us from London on uh, Watercooler. Well, thank you. It, it is out in paperback as well, by the way. So it's um, relatively inexpensive. Terrific. Even students can afford it. That's fantastic news. Thank you, David. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening.